This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join in on the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode or any other, please join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is David A. Goodman, writer and consulting producer for Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Warp 5 on Trek FM. Welcome, Boomers, to another episode of Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated enterprise show. I'm your host, Floyd Dorsey, and I'm joined by the Trek FM man himself, Brandon Shamatala. How you doing, Brandon? I tell you, I am doing terrible. My ship is all falling apart, it's being half destroyed, and it's off and it's adrift, but you know what? It looks amazing. Oh, yes. And you, you also have these uh, insectoid babies that you have to take care of, right? Yeah, they, uh, they're they slimy and they squirt all over my face. And you have a letter that you have to write. You can't forget about that. You've got homework, oh, man, right? Oh, such a great episode. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, folks, if you haven't noticed that uh, maybe with our hints here, we're actually going to be diving back into our Season 3 retrospective for Part 5 of the series. Uh, season three is already thought of being as an intense season, but now we are at edge of your seat type episodes here. Like this block of episodes is just electric, if you ask me. So we're going to be discussing the episodes Hatchery, Azadi Prime, Damage, and The Forgotten. You know what's awesome about The Forgotten? It's way better than Voyage's Unforgettable, because Unforgettable is forgettable, and The Forgotten is awesome. <laughs> Zing to the Voyager. Oh, okay. Can't, can't leave without one of those. All right. Very good. Honestly, when I, I, I mean, I'm not saying this as a pun. I actually forgot what the forgotten was about. Shame. You know, because, yeah, I know. I mean, I knew what damage was. I knew what Azadi Prime was. I knew what Hatchery was just by their names. And then when I was going back and watching this block, it's been about a year since I've seen them. I actually forgot what it was really about. And then when it started, I was like, oh, yes, forgotten. Well, yes, it, it's the aftermath. It's the, it's the quiet aftermath. Well, watching this know? episode this time, I got a question for you. Do you watch Star Trek Continues? Uh, yes. No, I haven't seen all of them, but I have seen some. Well, the, the, I, I, I'm terrible with names, but uh, the person who plays the woman in The Forgotten, uh-huh. she's the same actress, Kipley Brown, that plays Crewman okay. Smith on Star Trek Continues. Okay, okay. Yeah. Very good. Very good. 
I thought she did a really good job mm-hmm. too, but I guess we can, we can get into that later when we, we start breaking down the episodes. But yeah, I like, I liked her exchange with trip in her quarters. So we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, but before we get to that, let's talk about some listener feedback on the last few episodes of Warp 5. Yeah, Floyd, you've been away, so we've had to stack it all up, so we've got tons here. We've got tons <laughs> to talk about here. We've got like an hour and a half of feedback to talk about before we get into the episode. No, I'm exaggerating Uh-oh. slightly. It's, a, it's its own show, okay. So we, we had a lot of positive feedback on episode 122, which was our role-playing game episode. People really seemed to like that. And, uh, you know, just a reminder that we, we uh, did completely, totally steal the idea from episode 100 of Earl Grey, and we even got we got <laughs> Philip to come back. But Dan Lecky says, ah, an interesting concept for a podcast to tackle. Thanks for posting. Uh, I applaud your ingenuity and look forward to listening to the podcast. By the way, what would you say is the closest Enterprise got to showing the viewers what the lower decks of the ship and what some of the less important crew members would be doing? I personally think maybe Strange New World or The Forgotten got quite close, uh, but are there other contenders for that? And I couldn't think of anything else. I think that those are the two. I mean, we did see Crewman Cutler quite a few times throughout the run of the show. That's the person I was thinking of and like her relationship with flocks, you know, like walking down the hallway and just like, and, and dear doctor, mm-hmm. you know, like her, her interactions with flocks. But yeah, that was the only, only thing I could think of also. Mm-hmm. And Ron Mars says, this was a truly inspired episode. Really enjoyed it. Out of the box thinking. Thanks very much, Ron. Glad you enjoyed it. And Prescott Harden says, you all need to do this like once a month or every three to four episodes. <laughs> it was awesome and very fun to listen to as a 36-year veteran of role-playing games. You know, I haven't played a lot of role-playing games. I think I said this in the in the episode. I haven't played a lot of them. I've played like one or two in my life. And I think, Floyd, you're the same way that you hadn't played a lot. But it was it was. I neat. hadn't played not one. I, that was the first time I'd ever played ever. You know, and uh, I have to say that my boys thought that was the funniest thing ever to listen to. They thought that was so funny and just neat. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Right on. Well, do you want to read what Marsha Pratt has to say? So Marsha Pratt responded on episode 123, which is our Stump the Geeks episode, but that was also the last episode where we did feedback. Uh, that was the last time, yes. and we, we read the feedback on Bound, and we talked a bit about it, and so that generated some more feedback from Marsha Pratt on our Bound commentary. Do you want to read it, or do you want me to? Sure, I will. So Marsha says that regarding the Orions, I see them as women using their sexuality to manipulate and control men, and the pheromones are just an added alien trait. Their pheromones don't affect everyone nor every species in the same way. As a mother, if the sisters came at my hypothetical son, it wouldn't be their sexuality or pheromones I would have a problem with. It would be their intent to manipulate and control my hypothetical son. For me, an example of date rape would be Regine. And that's actually, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. Under her influence, she would physically violate you and you wouldn't know nor remember what happened to you. Her influence appears to affect more people than the Orion's pheromones. If Regine came at my daughter, she would be in grave danger or of physical harm. I'm trying to assess the situation as a mother because as a mother, I am very... I'm more sensitive and protective to threats against my real or hypothetical child than I would be if it were against myself. I'm also trying to assess the situation as a rape victim via my dad, but I can see that if someone was raped under the influence of a drug, they would be more sensitive to any kind of chemical influence and therefore more objectionable to the Orion's use of pheromones to control people. Well, first of all, 
Marsha, we just want to thank you for being open and honest via the uh, the message that you sent to us. I mean, it's not an easy thing to talk about any you know sexual assault in your past, but you know we've been trying to address that here on, on Warp Five. Like two episodes ago, we talked about it a little bit more in depth when we talked about our precious cargo and uh, and perfect mate comparison. And you know, as of today, we actually just th- we're recording this on December sixth, and you know, Time released their cover for Person of the Year, and it was the the people that spoke out this year. They had multiple people on their cover and uh it was the basically the, the me too hashtag which was their their the and all the people that spoke out as a part of that was their person of the year so that's the day that we're talking about this here um but yeah i understand what you're saying and i'm glad that this episode has continued to have a discussion and an effect on people and you know honestly floyd and i we didn't plan on that i mean i'm glad that it has because we were supposed to record with uh, David Goodman that night, but it fell through, so we just randomly were like, let's just do Bound for a commentary. And, uh, you know, there was we had a lot to say during the episode, a lot more than I thought we would have to say. And uh, it's I think it's turned out to be a good discussion, and it, it, it's helped me see things through other people's eyes, and I think it's helped other people see how we saw the episode. So, Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Marsha, for your comment there. And yeah, this keeping the discussion going and opening up other thoughts and other avenues is what uh, keeps this series fresh for me, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Episode 124 was our Essential Enterprise Part 4. And Dave Killery said, great conversation. You guys mentioned Shran's statement about no help from the Vulcans in the Expanse. I believe it was because they were terrified to return. Thanks for the great show. Now, this topic itself generated quite a bit of discussion. And Marsha Pratt also said, in Season 2, Episode 26, The Expanse, Saval shows Archer to Paul and Admiral Forrest a transmission from one of their ships that was in the expanse. The transmission shows the crew attacking and killing each other. That's their reason for not sending a ship with Archer. As for T'Pol, the High Command didn't give her much choice. It was either return to Vulcan or immediate dismissal. And Dave Killery mentioned, uh, came back with another comment, said, when logic fails, the Vulcans, they should run away. The immunity syndrome, another Vulcan crew was destroyed due to the illogical situation they could not cope with. And then I had responded on Facebook. I said, you know what? The Vulcans in Enterprise keep telling the humans that they're not ready to be in space because they can't handle what's out there. And I'm like, it sounds like the Vulcans are the ones who aren't ready for space because they can't handle anything that's going on. I know. It does It does actually kind of look like that. And then what does that say for T'Pol herself for choosing to go, even though others were afraid you know other others from her species were afraid in this case yeah. and and she she gave she actually sacrificed her career to go yep. like not not only did she go and take the chances of like the you know the mental or physical harm that she could have but she also hurt her career so that was you know that that says a lot about her also yep um, Janet Lee also says, if we saw hints of jealousy from T'Pol before, there's no need for a new character to bring that side out. Uh, she's talking about Cole. Uh, and why couldn't they bring back Alan or Liana uh, or Princess Fishstick? Uh, Princess Fishstick, I think, is who she's referring to from Precious Cargo, I'm guessing. Right. As, as terrible as the actress was, the story still would have worked better with her. I would love to get everyone's thoughts on the Trellium addiction, uh, the reason she was acting on Vulcan. When you get to the next set of episodes, I like that they made her emotional, but the addiction was a bad way to do it. Well, Janet, 
because of the timey wimey stuff here, this is episode yes, one. Yes, we've got some future. We got some future guy going on right future here. Guy. Some future guy stuff. We've already recorded episode one twenty nine, which is our next episode, and it's actually a deep dive into the episode damage with Phyllis Strong herself, the writer, and we do go really deep into it. We've already had the discussion, and it's really good. Uh, so that'll be on our next episode of Warp Five. It's just talking about damage with Phyllis Strong, and it's great. So be sure yep. to we'll we'll touch on it lightly today night i'm sure but uh stay tuned for the next one it's definitely worth it all right so for warp 5 125 essential enterprise season one janet lee commented that the rest of the breaking the ice wasn't a throwaway so she's making a she's making a a case for breaking the ice she said the arranged marriage b plot was the beginning of trip into paul's friendship even if you're not a shipper you have to admit it's a huge step forward for them which is what made civilization disappointing by having him not trust her, it seemed to erase whatever progress Trip made. I loved Paul for explaining the situation calmly, not talking to him like he was a crazy human. So thank you so much for that, Janet. Yeah, so we, we kept breaking the ice in, um, but... Uh, Brandy had thought that the rest of the episode might be a uh, throwaway. Now, they, they got into a discussion on this relationship on the Babel Conference. So if you want a okay. bit more on Brandy's uh, response to that, uh, simply go to the Babel Conference for that. So Amy Nelson, who's uh, my co-host over on The Edge, and she's co-host of Earl Grey, says, I just got around to listening, and you guys did a great job. So fun to listen, and I, for one, pretty much agree with your essential picks for the season. You really had a fun time discussing each episode, and I appreciate the way that you didn't let uh, your opinions on the episode, whether or not you liked it or not, influence whether or not it was kept. Well done. Uh, Justin Oser, co-host of Earl Grey, said, Really enjoying the episode. As you were discussing Detained, I thought of another reason that it's essential. I think Archer's experience in the episode allows him much later on in late season three to trust and make alliances with some of the Zindi. Mm-hmm, that's a good so point. That's interesting. Yeah, because Detained's the one where he's in that camp with the uh, the Suleban. It's one, yep. of the, one of my favorite episodes of the whole series. I love that episode so much. And Matt, listener Matthew Bell says, great discussion. Glad you got the whole season done in one podcast. Still not sure I would have included Dear Doctor, though. Putting aside the botch job it did on Evolution, I think there are better episodes out there where Archer learns the benefit of not interfering in other cultures. And then there was a bit more back and forth with Brandy and him and I as well, where we talked a little bit more in depth as to some of the options that he thought might be better choices for Prime Directive episodes. We decided to keep Dear Doctor. Um but yeah, that was a lot of fun, and we're going to continue on with that later on. Uh, we'll keep doing our Essential Enterprise episodes. I, that was a fun one. I definitely enjoyed it. So Very good. All right, so just to get on with the show here, so to speak, uh, we're getting getting into that Season 3 retrospective. So to help Brandon, Shay, and I dig into these episodes, we have a returning guest and a brand new guest. So Brandon, let's go ahead and bring in Patrick and Michael to... The NXO one on on warp five here. And to help Brandon Shea and I dig into these episodes, we have a new guest to warp five. Uh, transporting to the conference room for the first time, we have the host of Strange New Worlds podcast, Michael Wong. Welcome to Warp Five, Michael. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, this is your first time on Warp Five. You're a, I, I assume since you decide you agreed to be on our show, 
that you are actually a fan of Star Trek. Am I correct? That's right. A big fan. <laughs> All right. Because yeah. that, that would be a huge prank, you know, if you weren't <laughs> a fan, right? Okay. So before we get too far into the episode here, I always like to ask new guests about their history with Star Trek and Enterprise. So how did you become a fan of Star Trek? Well, it was passed down to me from my dad. Um, he watched the original series um, when he was young, and I remember being like four or five years old and stumbling into the television room, and there was an episode of The Next Generation on, and I just got hooked from that moment. I, I remember staring at this weirdly pale, metallic-faced guy, and I just couldn't stop watching him. And uh, so, you know, I first fell in love uh, with Star Trek by watching Brent Spiner play Data. And it ended up being uh, the episode called Masks, which I later learned is not always considered TNG's best hour. I love um, so masks. I like to... <laughs> <laughs> of course you do, Brandon. There you go. Um, so, yeah, it was only... Uh, going to get better from there <laughs> um but yeah no that that performance just for some reason i just couldn't stop watching and i was like this is so cool what is this show about and my dad said it's about a group of people who go out and explore outer space and i didn't really understand what that meant when i was five years old but um it it i you know i was just like okay sure that sounds great let's watch another episode um and it it ended up uh that i i really liked this show and, uh, you know, Star Trek has meant so much to me over the years. I went into my first day of kindergarten, of course, not knowing anyone and uh, bonded with my best friend since the first day of kindergarten over a mutual love for Star Trek. Um, so it's just it's just so, so crazy that that actually happened and that Star Trek has been with me throughout uh, all the years. Um, I grew up watching Voyager and uh, I was about... 10 going on 11 when Enterprise came out. And I thought, this is going to be it. This is going to be my show. I'm going to watch it from the beginning all the way through the end. And I did. So I also grew up um, in, in my early teenage years watching Star Trek Enterprise. Very good. So who is your favorite Enterprise character? That is definitely Dr. Flox. Yeah. Um, I really love <laughs> Dr. Flox. Yeah, I guess being sort of a, a, a weird, nerdy scientist, I I often identify with the the outsider character on Star Trek. So in um, in in Voyager, that was definitely uh, the Doctor, um, and on on you know Enterprise, it's sort of like is it T'Pol or is it Doctor Flox? And I just found that for some reason, Doctor Flox is quirkiness and his his love for his animals just really uh really stuck with me and i i love that aspect of him um how he brings an element of humor but then also an element of seriousness because a lot of moral dilemmas and ethical dilemmas get told through his perspective and i think we'll see that a little bit in the couple of episodes that we'll discuss today mm-hmm Yes, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. My favorite bounces around. It just depends on what I'm feeling when I'm watching it. But yeah, Dr. Flox is always right up there. So the, uh, one of the things that I noticed when I was watching these, this group of episodes, I watched them with headphones and I think this might be the first time I watched enterprise with headphones, but in, uh, in damage and, uh, Azadi prime and the forgotten when we're in, uh, Dr. Flox's medical bay there in sick bay, 
you could really hear all like the birds and stuff calling like in his sick bed. I like I'd never really noticed that before until I had these headphones on. I'm like, this is awesome. Is this because it's so damaged? Are they like loose in there, or is this something that's always there? <laughs> I never noticed it before. That's a good one. Yeah, I was actually watching these episodes on my phone with my earbuds in, and yeah, you can hear them. You can hear like the murmuring and things going on in the background. Cheap, so, cheap. I, I've never noticed yeah. before. Have you guys noticed? Is this a common thing? Like, are there always these noises, or was it just these ones? I've never I noticed. I don't know. I I did notice it this time, so that I just wonder if it was just that that particular episode. You know, like everything is being is maybe agitated or something. I don't know. Now that makes me want to go back and rewatch the episodes, all the episodes again with headphones on. Right. <laughs> At least the sick right. ones. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for joining us here for the season three retrospective here for these, uh, for the set of four episodes that we've got going on. We actually have another officer that's going to be reporting to the ship soon. He was dispatched on a mission, but he reported that his shuttle pod had hit a, an anomaly and it's slowing down just a little bit. So Patrick Devlin should be reporting here soon. Either that or we're going to be sending out a, a rescue pod or something to go try to help him out and pull him out of the anomaly here. Mm-hmm. But uh, hopefully he can join us here pretty quick. Well, it's a good thing. He's alone, so you know, if he crashes or whatever, nobody's going to eat him. Right. And I'm sure there's some uh, Kentucky bourbon under a seat there you know, to, to help him out, right? All right. So, yes, the episodes that we're covering here are Hatchery, Azadi Prime, Damage, and The Forgotten. So let's go ahead and get started with Hatchery. So, Michael, what did you think about Hatchery and just the overall uh, the, the look of the episode and just the feel of it? Yeah. So I guess I should say that I... I uh, went back to rewatch just these four episodes, so I haven't. Uh, I don't have the um, grand perspective of having watched the entire season three arc fresh in my mind. But of course, you know, I watched it back when it when it all came out. Um, so I, I really felt like Hatchery. I, I, w- I went into watching Hatchery remembering that I didn't like this episode as a kid as like whatever I was 12 or 13 at the time. Um, and, and I can sort of see why now, um, basically I didn't like seeing Archer go <laughs> get so influenced by this, uh, this, uh, Zindi insectoid bug spray, basically. Um, you know, it's, it's always hard to see your captain who's, who's sort of your hero, um, go off the rails uh like that and and go so crazy over trying to save these insectoid um children but after all these years i think i found a, a new appreciation for hatchery uh and it it really goes back to this ethical dilemma that uh occurs in the episode um you know i kept on wondering even even though he is affected and is being coerced by the neurochemistry in his brain to care for these young uh, Zindi insectoid hatchlings, is Archer actually doing the right thing? You know, um, is he doing the right thing? This is the type of ethical quandary that Star Trek is so good at posing. And it goes back to the old axiom, you know, the needs of the many, do they outweigh the needs of the few? And in what situation um, is the line drawn? And there's this internal battle, of course, between trying to complete the mission and go after the Zindi weapon, but then also trying to help basically helpless 
children, babies, right? And and I mean, in in a world where you're not on that mission, of course you're going to help these these uh, poor hatchlings, right? Um, but but when you have to pit that against the survival of Earth, you know where where is the line drawn? Um, and I found that a really fascinating uh, thing to think about. Well, that's a very interesting thing to to actually to you know kind of get the topic going is would Archer have done this had he not been under the influence of the spray? Right. You know, and then is that, is it ethical if he didn't, Mm -hmm. you you know? So yeah, that's, that's, I like that. That's a good, that's a good enter. So uh, Brandon, what did you think about the grossness that we had here going on with the hatchery? Well, it's interesting because I I also didn't like this episode when I first watched it back when its original run happened. And, you know, doing the rewatch, I've seen it a few times now since then. And I, I can't watch it without knowing that it's the spray that affects Archer and and why the spray affects him. So I don't know if it would work as well on a first time viewing because I can't distance myself from that. But I do know that there's one line in this that surprises me every time I watch this episode. And that's right after Reed fires on the insectoid ship and Archer's like, why didn't you tell them and tell them what we were doing? They could have taken over all the children, you know? And it's like, it it, it almost shows that he's not compromised because he's still kind of thinking rationally Yep. Right throughout this episode, and so it's really well written, where you know something's wrong, but he keeps coming up with these rational explanations for things, and they're they're not ridiculous explanations at all. So I, right. that's what I really enjoy about this episode a lot. Yeah, I I agree. I I the it it was so interesting to think of what a child would think about it mm-hmm. if they were seeing like their hero archer and the the hero who is being compromised in this way. Like, cause I, I saw this as an adult and I suspected that the spray was doing something. Cause I, the kind of funny thing is, is I always look at it from a technical aspect of when they always take off their helmets, mm-hmm. you know, like they, they go over somewhere and they test it and they say, yeah, the air is good. So, okay. <laughs> actually, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> right. And then in this episode, it was like, Reed opens up his Reed opens up his helmet, you know, and breathes the air a little bit and nods to someone else and they open up their helmet. And I mean, I understand the technical aspects of, we don't want them to do every episode wearing suits, you know, Mm -hmm. but I'm like, do we really want to take off our helmets? You know I mean? Just because it says it's oxygen doesn't mean there's something in the air here anyway, but yeah, Or, or at least it's not a shower curtain, right? that they that's from the original series that's a that's a that's a, a deep take from the original series there was an episode from there that the uh, uh a crewman takes off his glove and like scratches his nose up under his shower curtain the suit. naked time <laughs> right no and he he like scratches his nose under his suit it's like yeah that doesn't look like that would help you from anything you know except for the rain you keep rain off of you or something well you also just look at this side of paradise right for the original series anytime any of our major characters get like sprayed in the face with sprayed. something it doesn't turn out <laughs> right. well right? right so you know that's right so yeah i thought this episode just looking at it you know i just I, it, it's it's gross i can just hear heather barker saying this for some reason i haven't heard her say it but i could just hear her saying that you know it's just gross and 
Um, but I liked this episode. I really liked it for the tension that it created mm-hmm. because everyone wants to do the right thing and they all have respect for Archer and he's the captain and they don't want to disobey orders, but he's just not quite doing the thing that they thought that he would do, mm-hmm. you know? And it also kind of bring me back, reminded me of the few times that we've had to see the CMO in Star Trek, um, had to threaten to relieve the captain of duty, mm-hmm. you know, like McCoy and all the way around, you know, you know, they almost every CMO has had to do that. So yeah, I, I actually, I, I enjoy hatchery more now as I appreciate it more. Let's mm-hmm. just say that. So mm-hmm. Well, we also get some more development as well with uh, with Reed and I'm so bad with characters' names, but Hayes, Hayes, and Hayes, yes, and uh, you know, right at the end when they're talking, and Hayes is like, "Why didn't you come to me?" And he's like, "Well, I couldn't risk that you'd side with the captain." And Hayes is like, "You know what? I probably would have." And it yep. it's it really shows some more growth that's been building on them since their uh, their mono mono a few episodes ago there, um, but I, I like that. But he's right that yeah he probably would have because Hayes is a by the book kind of guy, and you know Reed yep. generally is as well, but he's starting to. I don't know if he's starting to loosen up a bit, but, uh, you know, Reed is generally a by-the-book kind of guy as well, and that's that's kind of why Hayes and him have clashed so much is because they are so similar. Oh, that is true, actually. You think about it, uh, Reed starts out in Season 1 as being a by-the-book guy. Like, I wonder how Reed would react if this had happened in Season 1. Mm-hmm. You know, would he have been helping Hayes to protect the ship, you know, and protect the captain no matter what? I thought it was interesting, though, the scene in the uh, shuttle pod, uh, shuttle bay, when Flocks and Tucker are there and they're kind of threatening him, or Archer, with relieving him of duty. And it, he could have, Flocks could have done, done it, but instead it, they kind of, they just, they hesitated and Archer turns and tells the Mako, like, hey, I, I've already put in, like, two senior officers, you know, in put them in their cabins already today. And then the, you know, those two turn around and walk away. I almost feel like if they were, if they were convicted enough to go to Archer, you know, to threaten this, that flocks probably wouldn't step down. I don't know. I, well, what, I think, what do you guys think about that? I think flocks uh, needed his scans first and that's, okay. he was like he hiding his tricorder in his pocket, right? Those, those deep right. pockets of his medical robes. And uh, he needed proof that Archer was actually somehow, going crazy and um and you know right so he just needed his proof he needed his data mm-hmm. right right i kind of i don't know though if i had come in like threatening him and getting my data i would have been <laughs> you know like kind of trying to win him over you know yeah. and and get my data and then come back you know with it instead of playing my hand a little soon mm-hmm. but you know get did you all have <laughs> scan him while he's aggravated look at <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Look how upset he is. We got a relief of duty. Look at his blood <laughs> right. pressure. Right. <laughs> yeah. So did you all have anything else that you wanted to add on Hatchery? Yeah, I thought um, in terms of a connection to Star Trek Discovery, um, it, at the at the very end, it's basically T'Pol who makes the 
call to go against Archer and to say, this this has crossed the line. We need to do something about this. Mm-hmm. And that's basically staging a mutiny, a first officer staging a mutiny against her captain, which is something that we saw in Star Trek Discovery. So it reminded me of Michael Burnham, uh, but of course, with a completely different kind of feeling, because this time I'm totally with to Paul staging that mutiny. I'm like, Captain Archer, you crossed the line. Let's go, let's go fix this. Uh, whereas, you know, when when Burnham uh Vulcan neck pinches uh Captain George I'm like, what are you doing? Oh my god, no stop. <laughs> no kidding. I said the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I just saw that. <laughs> no way. Yeah, yeah, no, the the only thing that I didn't like in this episode myself was uh was the scene when Archer's in the hatchery and then all the little ones start crawling all over him. And it's one of those things that you see a lot in like horror movies and stuff with the villain where they get the gross animals on him. Like I just finished watching The Mist, the the miniseries that's on Netflix right now that's based on the Stephen King uh, short novel. And in the last episode of that, or the second last episode, there's there's this one character who's like one with nature and she's like, crawling and she's got like rats crawling all over and she's like kissing them and stuff she's like oh they're beautiful creatures and it's like yeah I just don't like those scenes and especially seeing that with Archer it's just like it's just one of those creep out scenes that's I don't know I just didn't need need to be there that's the only that's the only thing I don't like in the episode I think oh my gosh I just thought of something yes I have seen that yes I know what you're talking about I just thought of something conspiracy from TNG yeah when the (laughs) That's a, but that's, yeah, that's awesome in that cut. one because that's creepy and it's it's conspiracy is <laughs> perfect. Michael conspiracy is my favorite TNG episode. Is it, what, okay. What was the what what did they ever call the thing that was that was in their necks? Anything? Did they ever call it that? Betty. Well, it, its name is yeah, Betty. Well, so anyway, it <laughs> it ends up crawling up the guy's arm or leg or something, you mm-hmm. know. And oh my gosh, when I was a little kid, I saw that that creeped me out so much. Okay, so yes, hatchery. Yeah, that scene actually kind of creeps me out still. And now I know why. It's because of conspiracy. Everything always is blamed on conspiracy here. Okay, there you go. So did you have anything else for Hatchery? Or you want to move on? Uh, yeah, I have, I have one more thing, actually, if, if that's all right. You bet, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. From, uh, from a scientific standpoint, I was a little bit surprised that these Indian sectoids reproduce asexually. Mm. Um, and that was sort of just uh, dropped at the very beginning when they're scanning the hatcheries and they're saying that uh, the the eggs share uh, are genetically identical in their DNA to the dead corpses around them. And I was like, genetically identical? That's, that's kind of weird. And then they go on and they actually explicitly say that the insectoids reproduce asexually. That is, each individual makes eggs and uh, those hatch into basically the offspring that are exactly the same as the 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 individual parent and the reason why i'm surprised by this is because you don't see a lot of asexual reproduction in higher order life forms um, because sexual reproduction allows for genetic diversity uh, whereas again asexual reproduction dictates genetically identical individuals and if an entire population has the same genes then they all have the same weaknesses and are all susceptible to the same calamities and for instance like a disease that Mm -hmm. strikes some weakness if if one person has that weakness everybody does because they have the same genes um and so 
the, the things that we see asexual reproduction in on Earth are basically microbes, little bacteria, and they just you know grow and divide, grow and divide. Um, but microbes have something called lateral gene transfer, which again ties into something from discovery, which is what they use to inject stamets. Uh, you know, they, they discover that the spores and the tardigrade can exchange genetic information. Um, and they, they use this to inject stamets with tardigrade DNA. And um, so bacteria can achieve genetic diversity by basically trading genes not during reproduction but just saying here here's a random gene i'm going to throw it at you and you're going to incorporate that into your uh into your dna and um and so just to see that kind of uh asexual reproduction in a in a higher order species like the zindi insectoids makes me stop and think and 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 wonder if they actually you know artificially manipulate their own dna to produce diversity that would okay. enable their species oh, to survive, wow. you know, um, wow. because that could answer a lot of questions then. Yeah. Wow. Um, so is there anything yeah. on earth like other than cells? Like, is there anything more advanced, like a bug or anything like that, that reproduces asexually? I think there are some like very few, uh, like exceptions to this rule that, that sometimes certain organisms like, Maybe um, protists and, and plants can reproduce asexually, but for the vast majority, um, uh, complex life forms like us reproduce sexually to, to basically gain genetic diversity. And this, this actually is an expression of the Vulcan philosophy of the Idic, right? Mm -hmm. There is strength in diversity. And, um, and, and, and asexual reproduction can't lead to that unless you are somehow modifying your genome outside of reproduction. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you so much for Michael, because I honestly have seen this episode a ton of times and I've heard them say that, but I just kind of went on with what's around the next corner. I didn't, I just kind of bounced off of me. I didn't really think of what it meant when they said that, that they looked, ex they were exactly the same or something like that. Well, I'm going to go on for a little tangent then here. So tangent. So do you remember the Voyager episode Deadlock, which is the one where they have the one ship and they go through that field and it makes the two slightly out of phase? Yes. And this is the one where Harry Kim dies. Okay, so mm -hmm. everybody says... Oh, yeah, like that narrows it down. <laughs> right, sure. <Okay. laughs> so everybody says that it... Oh, we got the wrong Harry Kim back. He's the alternate Harry Kim and whatnot. He's, he's not we're, for forever and on. We've got an alternate Harry Kim for the rest of it. But I don't see it that way at all because this is what I see. So I've got twin daughters, but they're they're fraternal twins. They're not identical twins. So I I tried to explain to people that it's like an identical twin situation where up until a certain point there's only one egg, and then at the point that they go through this anomaly, everything duplicates and splits. So it's like being identical twins up until that point. That's how I see deadlock. What do you think of that? Huh. Okay, I need to go and rewatch this episode <laughs> because I, I, I don't... I mean, it really depends on whether or not the two Voyagers really split from the same sort of timeline or if they had existed independently all along. And I think it was a split, right? Yeah. They, it was like, yeah. It was, everything it was split... And duplicated except for the antimatter. Okay, and then you just one Harry Kim died, and the other Harry Kim. Right, so they were the, the same Harry yeah. Kim, and then they yeah. had two hours of different life. Yeah, no, I, I like I like your theory that that works for me. Bam. 
Also, <laughs> Naomi, Naomi is a baby, right? Yeah, Naomi is a baby too, because in one she died, and because of the yeah, yeah, but it wasn't timelines; it was the same thing. So and now you just answered. Of Voyager. You, you've just answered why Harry Kim has never been promoted. So <laughs> yeah, that that was always my excuse. All right. So getting back over to our Enterprise podcast off of the Voyager <laughs> podcast. Um, we are arriving at Azadi Prime, so we get to that red giant here. So, Brandon, uh, how did you feel when you saw this and the 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 info that we got off of Degra at in during Stratagem that it actually worked out for us, and we've finally arrived at the planet or the system. This is a really good episode. I like this one a lot. Um, not only because I love the final shot of the episode so much when the Enterprise is like spiraling out of control. I've said that numerous times. That's my favorite shot in the entire series. Um, I just love that part so much. But um, it, it builds on a lot that we've seen in this season so far. And it tells the story in the way that Enterprise has been telling stories even back since season one. Like if you go back to season one, when they're trying to get to Ryza, it takes them several episodes to get to Ryza, and then like all these things kind of happen along the way. And here in this episode, like they're they're leading to get to Azadi Prime, and it takes them. You know, there's things that happen in between, like for example, the last episode with Hatchery, and it so it takes them time to get where they need to go. And that's a really interesting style of storytelling that I really like about Enterprise quite a bit. But there's many things in this episode that are are quite surprising. Like, I love the callback and the return of Degra in this episode. And I love how every time I watch this episode, I'm surprised when Archer goes underwater and the weapon is gone. Like, it's such a wonderful (laughs) reveal that every time I watch it, I'm not expecting it. Because that's not really how storytelling works in the Star Trek universe. You know, it's not that it's gone... It's because there's six episodes left in the season. It can't be gone, right? right? So it's they've got to do something where he tries to infiltrate it and he gets kidnapped. Well, that ends up being what happens, but just a little bit differently, you know. So I think this is a really special episode. It's really, really well written. Very mm-hmm. good, very good. So Michael, what do you what did you think about Azadi Prime and they're pulling up and they they finally arrived? Here it is. This is where they're building it. Yeah, uh, this is one of my favorite episodes of Enterprise for sure. Um, and let's see, uh, there's some, so there's some really, really great quotes in this episode as well. So oh, yeah. I, I really love <laughs> I've, when yeah, I've got uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah. When Janar, the, the Zindi sloth, um, says someone once said that dealing with reptilians is like bargaining with the sun. You make no progress and you come away burned. Right. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's some epic yes. poetry right there. Yes. Um, this episode is very quotable. Yeah. Um, also, when uh, Archer is taken into the future by Daniels and, and goes on the Enterprise J, I was really intrigued by that scene. And Daniels has a great line, too, which is, um, if you destroy the weapon, they will only build another. And I feel like, um, you know, this sort of speaks to um, the idea of how to how to how to fight a war, but more specifically, like how to fight terrorism right because we've probably mentioned before that season three was most likely inspired by you know the the, the acts of of terrorism in the, in it, the, in the it war definitely in the was it's been confirmed by right the writers yeah and and so you know 
Daniels is trying to tell Archer, you, it's not enough to just destroy their weapon. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to convince them that Earth is not the enemy, right? And Archer's not having any of it because he's thinking about the mission, about saving Earth tomorrow, not in the 26th century or whatever it is. Right. Um, and so, uh, but that, that's a really, really key um, philosophical point that Daniels is trying to impress upon Archer, which is, you know, you, you, you can't just... Um, fight this war by destroying their 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 weapon you need to convince them that the weapon is not worth building in the first place you need to show right. them that humanity is not evil as they believe it is and and that that was that really stuck with me um what else i i also think that this episode shows archer's um uh shows that Archer is not quite the experienced captain that Picard, Janeway, Sisko, or even Kirk uh, were. And I always point to the moment in the episode where Archer decides to destroy the communications station on the moon as it rotates into view, and then they mm -hmm. realize that in a few hours it's going to rotate back where it can talk to the rest of the Zindi on Azadi Prime. And Archer's gut decision is to blow it up mm -hmm. and of course as we know after watching the whole episode that that was that alerted the zindi to the enterprise's position i think that what archer should have done is beam down there and take it over right just send a couple makos there were like three individuals there just mm -hmm. beam down there you can stun them with a stun grenade and then continue just transmitting normally and then you wouldn't give away enterprise's uh, position and so this this decision by archer i think was uh one of those uh flashpoints in like a big ethical dilemma where archer has to make the unethical decision to save uh to continue the mission and save earth um but i think it was sort of the wrong command decision almost and i i usually point to this as saying look archer's not that refined captain who mm -hmm. thinks things all the way through sometimes he makes mistakes and i think this was one of those mistakes yeah i agree with you 100 percent. it's such an amazing scene and you can see how guilt-ridden and how torn he is to make this decision but you're right yeah he doesn't have the experience to to come up with other decisions he doesn't know what to do and it's such a great part of the episode, but, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. He could have gone down and had an alternative option for sure. So this is definitely going to be studied in future Starfleet Academy courses, you know, Archer's decision at Azadi Prime. Mm -hmm. um, but thinking of it from a commander standpoint, he's looking at this like, okay, we are in trouble either way. We They're either going to call down and tell them that we're here or they're – their signal is not going to be there and they're going to, you know, they're going to, we're going to be found out either way. Um, I guess the quickest way they could get found out would be if the Zindi uh, communicated down back to the, the main planet or something like that. Um, I guess from a camp, I'm just thinking of it from a commander standpoint, uh, I guess he didn't know what defenses there could be down there. And he couldn't take the chance that they might get a signal off or that it might take too long. Mm -hmm. So the quickest way is to put captain Kaboom on it you know, and push the button and get it over with. Right. Um, but yeah, that I could definitely see the debate happening in future uh, Starfleet, you know, dis discussing what were the other options that Harcher had. And like I said, he isn't that experienced, you know, he hasn't been the captain of a ship for very long. This, I mean, the way they portray it in this, ep this series, this is his first command. Mm -hmm. So, 
he made a mistake. You know, I mean, it could be debated that he actually did make a mistake there. He could, there was another way that could have maybe gotten it um, done a little quieter. You know, I mean, the explosion, it seems like that scans would be able to pick up the explosion itself, you know, or something. I don't know. But yeah, um, sneaking in with the shuttle, um, that reminded me of Star Trek six, you know, the scene where it shows, um, trip and, uh, I can't, I say Montgomery. That's the actor. Mayweather. <laughs> Mayweather. Yeah. There we go. They get, uh, they get Mayweather, uh, when they have to actually use the universal translator to translate the insectoid for them. <laughs> and it kind of reminds me of Star Trek six where Ahura is trying to talk Klingon, you know, as they're as they're racing toward the kid. Rura pente da. She's got this giant book, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they all have to laugh. It's like, where did you get that book? Funny. Anyway, yeah. but that's that's kind of what this reminds me of. It's kind of like Trip sends it, and then they just like hold their breath to hope that they didn't just order like takeout or something, you know, mm-hmm. in in a, in the wrong language, or cuss mm-hmm. them out or something, or say, you know, like yeah like up yours or something and an insectoid and start a fight. But yeah, I thought that was, that was pretty funny. Getting back to that, man, that just shows how talented Hoshi is. Oh yes. At what she does. Like the fact that she can communicate in this insectoid language and like have a little device that, that can communicate for her. Like that's pretty amazing. Okay. So do you think Hoshi should have been on the mission? No, because she doesn't know how to like run the ship and stuff, right? Well, no, she... I mean, was it was there only room for two? Because I'm pretty sure they could fit Hoshi on there too. I mean, we gotta give Hoshi some more things to do here, you know. And what if the universal communicator had went down? You know, well, that she was she couldn't make those sounds out of her throat. <laughs> like she wouldn't have been able to make those sounds for sure. Okay, but you, you know that's why they actually brought Hoshi along on the uh, the season one episode, I believe, when. Uh, civilization mm-hmm. when they actually uh that was like their first dress up and let's go down here and get amongst the people um they sent I, they had hoshi down there just in case the universal translator messed up mm-hmm. so i don't know i was just thinking of that because we haven't seen linda park that much at this point in the season and she is doing some important things mm-hmm. but she doesn't get that much to do you know that could have been something maybe she could have done it'd been awesome if hoshi broke out some you know, some homemade insectoid sounds, you know, or something. Okay. So, uh, Michael mentioned Daniels that we had Daniels coming in here. So, um, I thought it would be so disorienting for Archer to suddenly appear somewhere else. So what did, did that surprise you all when he, uh, just suddenly appears, like he goes through a door and he ends up somewhere else, you know, like when you were watching this again, yeah, it, it was well done. It took me by surprise. I didn't remember that that was part of this episode, actually. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, oh, yeah, Enterprise right. J. That's right. awesome. So what, what do you think about the Enterprise J, Michael? Well, uh, you know, we don't really get to see very much of it. We get sort of a schematic of it on the wall. Uh-huh. Um it it looked a little uh, – the interior decor was very um, – I guess it was this dark gray, like a space gray from, uh-huh. uh, you know, Apple. And 
it reminded me a little bit of the Enterprise E in terms of it's a little bit darker, yeah. uh, but then also just the the angles of of, of Enterprise NX01. Um, but it was kind of fascinating if you like watch the 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 battle outside. There's like Prometheus class starships yep. zooming yep. around out there. <laughs> I'm yep. Like oh. Those lasted a long time because what is this, the 25th century now? Right. And... Well, it's just like the Miranda <laughs> class, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, right. The, the Excelsior. Miranda, Miranda class. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There was an ex- you know there was an Excelsior out there fighting. You know, there had to be. It was held together by It was Balin probably the water. crazy horse. Yeah, like spit and baling wire and bubble gums holding it together out there. Yeah. I, I've yeah, seen like, – like Eagle Moss is going to be releasing an Enterprise J, and I'm not a fan of the design of this ship. You know, it, okay. it looks too fragile. And I know this thing is gargantuan. Like I've seen I've mm-hmm. seen displays of how large it is, and it's like it's like a hundred times larger than the the Enterprise E. Oh yeah. Like it's ridiculously large. You know, it's like that ship on space balls, right? Like where it just right. keeps going and going and going. And um I don't know. Like it, it just—it's such a strange design. I don't know. Like I'm not a big fan of it myself, but I know that a lot of people really do like the design of the J, and you know they're pretty eager for this model to be coming out for it. But I don't—I don't know how it is about like it being a ship. It looks like a work of art, though. I mean, it should be amazing sitting on someone's desk, mm-hmm. you know, as an Eagle Moss ship. Um, but yeah, I—I don't—I don't know. I mean. At this point, also we we have you know the discovery, and I was kind of kind of taken aback a little bit by the you know the shape of the discovery and how it looked, and now I'm kind of I'm in on it you know because mm-hmm. I'm I'm used to it already, so I I could I could go with the J you know it's kind of a hot rod it's a giant hot rod <laughs> but it looks kind of like a hot rod you know. Sweet okay, so I forget so, that Daniels is in this episode. This is another one we had we had talked about that one other episode. I can't remember if it was in season two or not, but it's like oh I forgot that Daniels is in this episode because he just appears so suddenly when he shows yep. up. Sometimes he's you sneaky, know? yeah, he's sneaky. It's like he's traveling through time or something. So uh, he gives Archer the medal, and you know tells him that there is Indy actually serving on the ship and that thing. Um, this was a quote coming back. Uh, uh, Archer shows it to, to Paul to Paul says, I'll have this quantum dated. And Archer says, we both know it's from the future. (laughs) I I was like, Oh yeah, here we go. Burn, burn to Paul. Go ahead and admit it. You know, you, you believe in the future. And, uh, so yeah, that she still, and I watched her face, even though he said that I watched her face and he, she still like didn't give away that she does believe, you know, she's still holding out hope that the Vulcan science directorate is still, um, they still are correct, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. So th- for this episode, we also, uh, not only does to Paul not, uh, show that she believes in, uh, future and time travel type situations, but she also is showing outward signs of emotion. So I watching this again here, I've seen this several times and I kind of forgot the real reason why she was showing emotion. I couldn't decide if it was Trillium D or if it was Pinar syndrome. So Pinar syndrome is what she had contacted or we will find out that she contacted um, in later 
and uh, she it was from the episode Fusion where she was violated by a, a mind meld. And I, when I saw this, I didn't really know if it was Pinar syndrome or if it was Trillium D, but I don't even know if they've actually mentioned Pinar syndrome yet. So they haven't maybe, yet. No. Okay. I'm that's my future guy. Um, Daniel's uh, telling me things I shouldn't be repeating, I guess yet as far as the timeline <laughs> spoilers goes. for later on. Right. So what, what were you thinking when you start, you saw uh, to Paul giving us uh, this emotion from a Vulcan, Michael? It was it was really interesting, especially when when she says the line, "I don't want you to die to Archer." When he decides that he was going to fly the sole suicide mission to go destroy this uh, weapon, and that really really shocked me. I I wasn't really, you know, I was like, "Wow, you know, either you care about Archer that much that all of your Vulcan emotional suppression can't handle it." Or something's wrong, and I think we find out later that it that it is the the trillium D addiction mm-hmm. that's causing all these emotions to surface. Um, but yeah, that that did shock me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it, you know the trillium D is well in hindsight now that we know that it's coming. It, it explains some of the things she's ha- that had in previous episodes as well, like um, Ian Harbinger when she's you know, basically throws herself on trip at the end of the episode, right? Because Mm -hmm. Amanda Cole's been, uh, you know, getting in her way and whatnot. And so we boil it down to uh, the the Trillium D addiction is starting to get a little bit out of control, I think. Mm -hmm. So um, Degra becomes a very interesting character. I mean, I already already thought he was interesting because uh, he is the guy who is building the weapon and they got some information about him that he's a family man from when they, when they, uh, they secretly interrogated him in stratagem. So, uh, it seems like Dagger is looking for an excuse not to do this. You know, um, like he's thinking like how many children were lost when that for the probe attacked earth. And, um, I just, I thought that was very interesting how Dagger is, uh, he's just looking for an excuse not to do this. What do you think about that, Brandon? Well, it's interesting that they bring him back because, you know, they've already developed a friendship with Archer in Stratagem. It, it kind of blew up at the end of the episode. They had to wipe his memory. But because they had that friendship in that episode, Archer's able to build on it and gain Dagra's trust rather rapidly in this episode, which is what's needed. Yep. Right, so it, it's really interesting, and I think Dagger really becomes an interesting character in Stratagem, and this just builds builds upon that character. And I, I like Dagger; I think he's a great character, and and uh, it, it's it's interesting to see, you know, what happens in this episode and the choices that Dagger makes, you know, and uh, and as well as later on. And yeah, I like it. I think it's a I think it's a wonderful plot development for this character. Yep. So, Michael, what do you think about Degra and his uh, a crack in his armor? It seems. Yeah, it seems like we are getting to see the uh, the the softer side of him because he he thinks about the children that his initial prototype weapon killed. He also thinks about his own descendants, his own children, and and wonders how they'll remember him and his generation of Zindi, um, and so. Definitely, he's having second thoughts about this, and uh, and I think that Archer um, plays into that when Archer gets captured and um, and has that 
finally wins that conversation with Degra one-on-one. Yep. So, uh, I watched this episode and now I did, I always really liked Tucker Smallwood's character and he, you know, he was never named, but I always saw him as maybe being Degra's boss in this, you know, but, uh, Tucker, his, his character plays a very good devil's advocate, I think. Mm-hmm. So, um, one one line that Tucker has in this is the council is fracturing. We need to remember who the real enemy is. And that actually will be repeated later by the sphere builders, you mm-hmm. know, looking working ahead. You need to, you need to remember who you're supposed to be. Who's the enemy. You need to re- remember who you're fighting here. Also, there was an exchange between uh Dager and Tucker. Uh, Dager said quantum dating confirms it's from the future. And Tucker said that still doesn't prove he's telling the truth. So I thought I thought that was very interesting. You know, I'm like I'm thinking like, yeah, that's true. You know, you're you aren't convincing me yet. You know, from their standpoint. Also, the arboreal does the same thing later. I don't remember what his name was, but he he is hard to convince because anything, any of this could be the. Uh, I guess that actually happens in the forgotten, but any any of this could just be made up. It doesn't actually just because it's true doesn't mean what you're saying it, that it means that this is true, or what all. What all is happening here? I wonder if these are the two that, uh, if that's the one where in our interview that we did with Tucker Smallwood, where he said, oh, one is Deepak and one's Chopra. I don't know. That's the names that they gave themselves for their characters. Right. I think that's him. Yeah. So, I, which one was he? <laughs> I, I can't remember. I think I think the, uh, that Tucker Smallwood was Chopra. And okay. The other guy was Deepra, Deepak, okay. I think okay. is what he said in the interview. I don't remember, though. Yep. So uh, we have the sleeve pocket. Always getting pulled in there because when Archer's being uh, interrogated, or when he, when the when Dagger is talking to him, he mentions that it's in my pocket. You know, the metal's in my pocket. I knew they were going for the sleeve pocket. I always like it when they use the sleeve pocket. You know, <laughs> yeah, those Enterprise uniforms are so cool because of all the pockets. <laughs> yes, and and Archer always keeps his communicator in his sleeve pocket. So I always say like sleeve pocket for the win, you know, on that because nice because I mean Kurt couldn't do that, Picard can't right. do that, you know. Yeah, only, only Archer can do that. All right, next time I play an Enterprise drinking game, sleeve pocket will be one of them. Right. Yes. <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, just getting on to like Tucker, just he just stood out in this episode. So um, Archer in that in the interrogation area or when he was talking to him, he said, let me speak to the council of your, this council of yours, present my case. And Dager said, some of the council members would sooner execute you, which I agree, you know, and Archer, uh, then let me help their, let me, let me change their minds or help me help. Let then help me change their minds. And Tucker comes back with, you haven't changed ours. And I'm just <laughs> like, yes, Tucker just still playing it cool like that. Yes. He's such an awesome actor. I love him. <laughs> yes. And uh, the episode actually ended with the Enterprise getting pummeled. That was what I had in my notes. I love it. <laughs> you like that? I love that so much because it's just, it's there's six episodes left and they're just getting the snot beaten out of them. Yes. You know, and it looks so awesome when they're just kind of upside and upside down and floating away, like out of control. Oh, I just, it's, it, it, you know, somebody, when I said that once, they're like, but she's our hero ship she's the enterprise how can you like seeing her beat up like this and it's like it's just it's such a powerful moment right that man. they are in deep deep trouble and that's what makes it so amazing it's a great battle sequence it's really really well done 
Yes. And they're, they're very far from home and they're all by themselves. And like, there's mm-hmm. no one that's even close to ever coming and helping them, you know, yeah. or at least that's the way it looks. And I, right. I this is, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I, okay, I was yeah, thinking, I'm... I was thinking I would even maybe take a chance with the repair station, that automated repair station at this point, <laughs> <laughs> the one that tries oh, to yeah. steal people. Just make sure everybody keeps an eye on everybody, you know, back the to back. Right. Right. station. Right. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say there, Mike? Yeah, uh, I mean, this is just what you dream about. This is what you've been waiting for all season long, um, for the for really the Enterprise to just get beat up and uh, being held together by spit and bailing wire, as Trip will say mm-hmm. in the next episode, um, and how our characters uh, will fight through basically the impossible and mm-hmm. accomplish their mission, right? Because uh, this is the the great part of, about serialized storytelling is that you can totally just beat up the ship and then have that be a consequence for the rest of the season whereas in you know like voyager voyager's on this epic journey home but every single episode almost it just resets and the ship is fine at the beginning and so i really loved this season three story arc for the fact that yeah you got to deal with the fact that you're running out of antimatter you need to you you need to steal a a warp coil or something because you don't have it you can't just go back to starbase right um Yep. So speaking of that, according to Memory Alpha, not only speaking of damage continuing for Enterprise here and the way they did it, no reset button for us. According to Memory Alpha, damage inflicted to Enterprise in this episode is not fully repaired until the season four episode of Borderland. So that is that is deep. D yeah. into season four. So that gives our listeners and everybody well, a Borderland, chance. that's the that's the soon trilogy so that's about eight episodes in i think seven or eight yep so that gives our listeners a chance and enterprise fans a chance when you go watch now when you're watching it is that true is is the enterprise still damaged all the way up until borderland until we're dealing with uh noonian soon so yeah so did you have anything else about azadi prime i mean we man azadi prime is really good episode yeah it is that's some that's some great stuff here so. I just wanted to add uh, a final uh, science note on Azadi Prime, okay. which is that um, it's it's often referenced in this episode and previous ones that Azadi Prime is a habitable world orbiting a red giant star. Uh-huh. And that's super interesting to me because a red giant star is uh, a dying star. It's a very late stage star. It's super old. It's what our own sun will turn into in about 5 billion years as it runs out of uh, hydrogen in its core. It'll start to puff up and uh, and get really red and really uh, luminous. And eventually it's going to eat Earth and make Earth uninhabitable. Um, but what we see is the reverse of that going from, oh, there's this nice habitable planet and then getting swallowed by a red giant star to, oh, there's a habitable planet orbiting a red giant star, which means to me that Azadi Prime, this world with copious amounts of liquid water uh, as an ocean that basically envelops the entire planet, for most of its history, it was probably a frozen snowball out in outer space. And then only after that star swelled up in its dying moments did that world become habitable right and that's really fascinating to think about i've I've thought about that also because when we're thinking of when our sun goes to a red giant the inner planets are going to be gone the outer planets won't be outer anymore they'll be they'll be like closer to an earth orbit 
you know, or the, you mm-hmm. know, it could be interesting that Jupiter actually could be closer to an Earth or- orbit, or you know, Saturn could actually be, you know, as far as like in relative distance and size of what the red giant will be. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. a great that's a great call on that because I was thinking the exact same thing. You've got this planet that is covered in ocean, it seems like, or a ton of ocean. It was frozen water, you know, a, a, yep. a million years ago or however however long that it took for it to happen. Mm-hmm. So that's a great call on that. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to damage. But before we get on start on damage, we actually have our officer. Our, our missing officer that was stuck in the shuttle pod and run through the anomalies. He has made it. Did, did you have to use the transporter pad or were you able to actually pilot the shuttle pod in Patrick? No, no. Eventually we got it moving. Um, and we kind of had to just nudge our way over. Uh, uh, by the way, I love what you did with the place. This whole post-apocalyptic hole holes and everything looks great here. Right. <laughs> it's like landed anywhere. There's holes plenty. Yeah. Where, yeah. You, know, you gave me something to aim for. Right, you don't have to. We don't have to open the doors. There's holes everywhere in the ship. Just <laughs> land, right? So yeah, there, there you go. So yes, folks, uh, if you don't recognize that name right there, we have the co-host of the Briar Patch joining us now is Patrick Devlin. Welcome aboard, Patrick. Thank you, guys. All right. So damage. Um, wow, damage is hitting like everything is just building up and building up and building up. The episode starts, well, actually, Azadi Prime ends with them just getting hammered, 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 and damage starts, picks up right exactly where Azadi Prime left off, and here we go. We're getting into this thing. So, damage, uh, Patrick, what do you, what do you, what do you like about damage, or what do you think about damage? Well, I love the episode. It's probably the best episode of the series, in my opinion, um, because so much happens Whoa. in it, and. Uh, you have you finally have them like the whole season we've been building to them really with their back against the wall and we keep feeling like they're getting a little bit deeper and deeper into trouble but now they're that's it it's over they're they're in trouble they're they're losing life support they're losing everything meanwhile their arch is also still trying to convince everyone else that they've been lied to stop blowing our people up right very good so michael what do you what do you think about damage yeah, you know, again, I I just love seeing the Enterprise really beat up and it, you know, is reminiscent of like the year of hell from from Voyager and really seeing everybody's, you know, faces covered in in sweat and 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 grime as they're trying to pull through this really really difficult moment and yet still try to be the best human beings that they can and then they run into basically the impossible situation where it's like you know what we have to kind of do what is absolutely unethical under normal circumstances but it's you got to do it so it's 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 this very in the pale moonlight situation so it's like a fusion of year of hell and in the pale moonlight and i just i love that um uh you know, being along for that ride and just being like, oh, please don't have to do that. Oh, no, you got to do it. OK, I hope you're successful. <laughs> oh, gosh, it was a roller coaster. So, Brendan, what did you think about when you heard Reed's and Tucker's damage reports? Uh, and they just kept on and on and on just telling us what was wrong with the ship. What did, what did you think about that? I thought, get to work, you lazy bums. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah, like it's it's. 
almost as good. We mentioned earlier tonight, Deadlock's my favorite Voyager episode. It's almost as good as when Tuvok's going through his list of damage report from uh, from Deadlock after they have their their uh, the pulses are affecting their ship. Right. So because uh, yeah, nothing beats that scene for me. <laughs> right. So we got. Um, I mean, we're going through here. We're fine, hearing about the damage, everything like that. Archer actually gets released. Um, they almost shot Archer while he was being in an escape pod or whatever it was. They almost almost shot at him. And they I'm get... always surprised by that as well. Like, there's so many things. I've, I've seen these episodes quite a few times. Like, right. you know, I, this is like the fourth time I've seen these episodes. And, I mean... Why Why did these uh, aquatics release him? I'm always surprised that he's gone. I'm like, what is going on? Exactly. And then we find out that it's Dagger that's helping him. And it's just, again, it's such a weird plot point, but it's wonderful. And it kind of brings up, like, at the beginning of the episode when Dalum is talking about, like, why do we allow an enemy vessel just to sit here next to our facility and not be destroyed, you know, and why haven't we taken him prisoner? And then this is even farther. Not only do we not take the crew prisoner, we let go of the one prisoner we have. (laughs) So yeah, the reptilians would not be happy with that situation. So we get a look at the aquatic ship and then you got to think, you know, okay, the aquatics can, they, they they're spacefaring. So in order to be spacefaring, they would have to have a giant swimming pool flying through space, you know, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the opposite of that would be to have a space for a humanoid and he's looking in at the ship or are they looking back at him? So what did, what did you think about getting to see the aquatics ship and just the concept of that, uh, Patrick? No, I loved it. I love the fact that they thought out enough to have a little area like, like as if it was a reverse aquarium. You know, like exactly. they had a little tank for humans or humanoids. And uh, <laughs> right. and they thought this out far enough that yeah. they figured, well, since we're flying around space, we might have to take on some people once in a while. So let's get a little tank because most people can't sit in water as much as we can, you know. So I, I right. thought it was pretty cool. And, and seeing, like, uh, the confusion at first about where he really is, like, on the ship and everything. And, uh, and it's just, again, it's like a reverse aquarium. I love the part when he like wakes up and he's like, what are you doing? What's going on here? And they're just like, gas him. (laughs) (laughs) Just knocks him out. Shut up, Archer. Quit quit banging on our window, man. Don't Don't tap the glass. Did you see the sign? Don't tap the glass. (laughs) He's never been to a pet shop before? I mean, come on. <laughs> we just named the episode. <laughs> Don't tap the glass. There you go. All right. Very nice. So, Michael, what what do you, how, what do you think about the concept of the aquatics having a a ship like that? It it you know it it did cross my mind seeing the aquatic ship and then also seeing the location of the uh, of the weapon being built underwater. That was like, wait a minute. In order to build metallic things, you kind of need to like smelt metal, right? right? How do you do that underwater? And right. so this is something that is actually a, a little bit puzzling, uh, and it um, it sort of raises the point for astrobiologists in real life who think about uh, alien civilizations emerging on different types of worlds. We have some worlds in the outer solar system, Europa and Enceladus. These are moons of Jupiter and Saturn, respectively. Mm-hmm. And they have 
potentially habitable environments, a global layer of, of, of liquid water and a subsurface ocean that is hidden underneath an icy shell. Mm-hmm. And people are like, you know, that's that's really great. There could be so many Europa-type worlds out in the cosmos with lots of life swimming underneath an icy shell. But could they ever develop a civilization that we could contact? Because can you ever imagine um, a, a species that solely lived in water to actually build like a radio antenna, right? right. Can they actually build anything without fire? And, um, and, and so, I mean, the Zindi Aquatics kind of, probably got help by the land-dwelling species that have co-evolved on their planet right. and learned how to how to use uh, metal and do blacksmithing eventually building spaceships but it does just raise the question in my mind like huh you know if if the zindi aquatics didn't have the land zindi species would they have been able to figure that that out on their own so for me when i look at the zindi aquatics i Think of the, I can't think of what it is right now. It's like a salamander type situation or something like it's a, it's a something that what it was, it's, it's the reptile or the fish. I can't remember how it's actually categorized, but it can change ponds or it can change water spaces Mm, by traveling across water because it can actually breathe air or it can, it can, it's, it's gills or something or, or it, it, I can't remember now what it is. Now that you're you're mentioning it, I mean, they actually kind of look like that. They actually look like they could actually crawl up out of the water and on land. They have like hand like type features on their, on their front. So is it a salamander? Is that what I'm thinking of? Is that? Yeah. It's like an amphibian, right? Right. Something that lives in the water and on land, but it looks kind of like a fish, like the back half of it kind of looks fishish, but it can actually drag itself or across land. And then there's somehow it has like gills and lungs or something. There's something like that. There was something going on. Maybe I'm just making it up. Maybe that's just sci-fi, you know, but you know, (laughs) Hey, and uh, that's kind of what I think of with them. I just wonder if they could actually breathe out of the water. They just we just happen to see them underwater. But hey, you know they actually could drag themselves out of water. And that, but thinking of it, like you said, Brandon, they would have to in order to build a ship underwater. Wow, that's that's really that would be awesome. Well, that leads me to think that so because they're building the weapon underwater. Uh-huh. Maybe the primary workers who are working on this are aquatics. Uh-huh. That's what I thought right? also. That's what I thought you also. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, like I don't, I, I, I think they can smelt underwater. Like I've seen, I, I'm sure I've seen images of like you know drilling and stuff going on underwater, and they're like like cutting, welding or cutting something torches, like, like an underwater cutting torch, cutting torch, and underwater maybe it's just cutting torches that I've seen then. Uh, under, but it, you know, no, I mean there is underwater welding. Like you can, do, you have underwater welding, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you can do, but that would be, yeah, that'd be interesting. It'd be, it would be interesting to actually see them working on it. You know, like mm-hmm. if, when we did the flyby or something, we actually saw them work like something happening over here and then working on it, like a torch or something, them working on it. So, um, yeah, I, the, the, I could not mention the aquatic ship because isn't that, is that the first time we've seen an aquatic ship? I think I think the ship. Yeah, we've yeah, seen the aquatics think, before, but right. not the ship. I, that blew my mind because just thinking of what would happen if they had a hull breach, you know, to the ship. <laughs> I mean, that's it would freeze. Right. 
And it like we here we have like the air is, is blown out, you know, because of the vacuum of space. They would actually freeze. Their water would freeze, or their liquid, or I guess it's water, but um, they would freeze. So that that would be interesting. I mean, we actually get to see that way later in the season, but see what it would look like for an aquatic ship to actually be destroyed. Okay, so um, when Archer returns to the ship, uh, Phlox reports that three crew are unaccounted for. So, uh, trivia question there. Did anyone know where the three crewmen went? It was in Azadi Prime. We saw them blow out. Like, there was a shot at the top, and you see the bodies come out. Yep. So, actually, it's it's shown during the prologue for this episode, when they're showing, like, last time on Star Trek Enterprise. It actually shows the hull breach, and three bodies fly out. So, I thought, wow, that's a nice detail. They're actually referring back to the last episode, and they're actually accounting for crewmen here. And three are unaccounted for, and we saw what happened. They actually were blown out into space. And we have... uh, Casey Big shows up just in time. So Damar, Damar gets there. So uh, Michael, what did you what did you think about Archer's decision? Like I know that that's everyone's always has been waiting for us to come to this point, Patrick and Michael. So what did you think about Archer's decision as far as going to get the warp coil? Yeah. Uh, what did I think about that? I mean, I guess it's it's just one of those necessary evils, right? I mean, um, you're you're playing that that balancing act again, where it's like, you know, you're you're doing somebody wrong for sure. You know, it's an immoral act to strand people away from home. You're you're uh, you're not being a nice guy, but at the same time, you're doing it to save your entire species. So like, where does that, you know, it's, is it a pure numbers game? Um, and again, like uh, I referenced the, in the pale moonlight from DS nine, where, where Cisco, you know, knowingly does something that's definitely wrong. And it's one of the best episodes of deep space nine. And I think this, the same kind of moral quandary is what makes damage so powerful because you can't help, but put yourself in Archer's shoes and ask yourself, would I be doing the same thing? So Patrick, could you believe, could you believe it when you saw this the first time or even the second or third time Archer making this decision? No, to be honest, like I I couldn't believe it because I've been begging him to do something like this all season from the very first time well yeah back in regime you're like yes killer yes now now do it do it and he never would do it and he finally did it yeah yeah i for this particular scene i know uh, brandon likes this scene quite a bit or i can just guess that he does here that archer is literally sitting in the dark as he's deciding to do this, like when Phlox walks in carrying Porthos, Archer is sitting in the dark and that is just so powerful. So Brandon, what do you, what do you think when Phlox uh, walks in with Porthos? Well, yeah, we're, we're doing a little bit of a double dipping here with our timey wimey because our, <laughs> you know, as we mentioned in the beginning of this episode here, we're our next episode. We've already recorded with Phyllis strong and, and I say it in that episode as well. Like this is like my, my favorite scene so, in Enterprise. I thought you were about you know, to say, if, so you need to tune into the next episode to get my answer to that question. <laughs> Wait for two weeks for that one. Right. This is my favorite scene in Enterprise. Like, Flocks in this is amazing because... Spoiler he, alert. He um, he's comedic relief quite often in the show, 
but he's also a moral compass for the many characters in the show as well. And that's what makes him such a fascinating character. And that's what makes him my favorite character. And in this episode, you know, like, I, I just love him. And the question that Archer asks him, and where he's like, have you ever had to do anything immoral? And he's like, twice. And he, he knows, he doesn't have to think, you know. And this is one of those things that Archer's never going to forget. Right. And, you know, whatever those two things are for flocks he, he doesn't have to think he knows what's wrong and he knows that he had to make a call that was a hard call and then and flocks still had his back though because flocks knew what he was referring to he never actually says it to flocks mm-hmm. because i i would think that flocks would be morally obligated to try to talk him out of it if he admitted straight up this is what we're going to go do he never archer right. never actually says it flocks just says you know when archer says there's going to be casualties flocks just said i'll be ready because that's what a doctor would do if there's casualties. But yeah, exactly. But yeah, yeah this is such a, such a, such a great scene because uh, you go into it thinking that, okay, Archer hasn't made up his mind and he's called flocks to his, uh, to his ready room to try to give flocks the chance to talk him out of it and use flocks as a sounding board. Um, but then you find out that, you know, Archer, Archer isn't looking to flocks to help him justify his decision. He's already made his decision. Yeah. He just says, there will be more casualties. Yep. And uh, and you find that out and you're just like, oh, dang. Yep. You know, like... <laughs> yeah, I, I really like that scene. I mean, this whole episode has some amazing scenes and character interactions and the tension and the drama that's going on. It's just, it's just building and building and building. And... Uh, Oh man, but yeah, just watching it this time, I was ready for it. It's kind of like the scene from the Pale Moonlight, like you mentioned earlier. Like you're you're waiting for it because you know it's going to happen, and it's just as good as I remembered it the last time I saw it. It's just so good. So, um, when we get to um, to Paul here, uh, she's acting a little strange, you know, and she's been acting strange for a while. And we actually mentioned this when we were talking about Zadi Prime. Uh, it's fully revealed that she isn't well. She's having really bad dreams. She's just all over the place. Or, or maybe she's having really good dreams, you know, as far as like the shower scene goes. Uh, or or in, until she turns into something. So, um, Patrick, when it they reveal, like when they saw, you saw T'Pol going to the cargo bay, acting like she was acting. Like, what what did you think was going on with her? I mean, she's a drug addict, right? And that's right. really they, they they pinned it perfect on how I think a um Vulcan drug addict would act. Right. It's it's just very illogical for her to become a drug addict in the first place though, which is the weird part. But um uh-huh. but for her to keep it secret that long and, and like now we're like really seeing just how bad it really, really is over the last few episodes, it's kinda crazy. It's just kind of illogical, but it it's it's a great scene and it's it's a little hard to to like watch actually but but it does seem like that's how i think she would be if she was trying to get i guess the, the vulcan version of high you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah we talk about this with phyllis quite a bit in the next episode as well but um so i'm not going to go too much into that because i don't want to spoil that quit that quit going future really... guy with us man you keep going future <laughs> it's a really guy good here. discussion <laughs> Spoiler but, um, alert, man. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where it's like when she saw how much it affected the Vulcans in Impulse, like why would she think to inject herself with this stuff? At first she ate it, 
right? She says she first ingested a little bit. It's like, why would she think to do that? And it's, but I also understand the fact that nobody would choose to become a drug addict, right? Nobody makes that choice. And, and it's very fascinating to watch it because Jolene Blaylock does a very good job, you know, of like the, the, the symptoms of withdrawal, and that when she when she injects that into her neck there, like it's really really well acted, mm-hmm. but it it is one plot element that I've had a lot of trouble coming to terms with because it just seems weird that she would make that decision to ingest it that first time, right? Like what what would push her to actually put it in her mouth? You know, this right? Rock. Like it just don't you put it in your mouth? Don't you put <laughs> it in your mouth? Don't you stuff it in your face? But it just seems odd that. Like you'd think of all the species in the galaxy, like Vulcans would almost be drug addict proof, because they just would never start. They would never justify in their own head. Like you said, no one chooses to be a drug addict, but everyone chooses like the first time they do drugs, thinking they will never be a drug addict. But, right. But, yeah, but T'Pol never got that choice because she she had to board the what was the name of that ship? The Saleya. Saleya. Yeah. yeah. Right. So True. that's that's her first dose, and from then on, that was her taste. That's she, right, she, right, and then she starts getting her withdrawal, and then she, but I don't know. I, it just seems like everything we know up to this point of her, she would have went and got help before she went and ate it and shot it and did all the other stuff, right? Because they're logical, you know. Like she's a logical Vulcan, so it's just it's that one. It's just that's what that one decision is just a hard one. Like afterwards, fine, the decision's made. Nobody chooses to become a drug addict. It's just that first choice like being a logical vulcan why would she make that choice well to paul's a rebel you know i mean she gave up her commission to do this mission anyway you know she's she likes to kind of go against the grain or that's how i kind of see her as a rebel and um she did get a taste of what it was like to kind of lose control of her emotions or at least feel emotions that she had never felt before when she was aboard the Solea. and this was her experimenting i mean I, I can't remember if she actually says it in this episode or the next episode, but that she, I, mean, I think maybe it may, maybe the next episode, they're all kind of running together right now, but she tells flocks, like she kind of, she got a taste for it and she liked it and she wanted to experiment with more and see how much more open it would make her. Like how much more could she open her emotions up? But yeah, it was, it was, it really, it's kind of a side note on this. It kind of calls into question. Why is the air hose on the back of their, their helmets? So if they fell down or they caught it on a, a limb or something, they would lose all their the air. Drama. Right. Yeah. I, so I'm watching that going, okay, check, note this, make sure the air hose is on the front of the suit. Anytime I'm designing a spacesuit. that way we can actually repair ourselves. But yeah. So, um, Sphere Builders, we get a look. Actually, a second look at the Sphere Builders. Some people say this is the first look. We actually get a second look because the first time was in Harbinger when they had the test subject that they'd actually sent in. But we actually get to see what, I guess you could consider the female, the Sphere Builder female. I don't know if we actually know what sex they are or anything like that. But um, so what did you think when you saw the Sphere Builder here, Michael, showing up on the scene yeah, uh, well, I have to admit that because I hadn't watched all of the episodes leading up to this uh, this group of four, that I couldn't remember if this was the first time that we saw the Sphere Builders uh-huh. or not. So it wasn't uh, like a like a grand reveal or, or anything like that. 
um, to me because I just knew, yeah, eventually the sphere builders, they need to, they need to meet the, the great masterminds behind all of this. Um, and uh, yeah, I felt like it, it was just a really interesting concept. I'm also not sure if this is the first time that it was mentioned that the sphere's purpose is to manipulate space, uh, to alter the physical laws of space and allow um, it to be habitable for the sphere builders uh, species. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's a really interesting concept as well, that they're coming from a completely different universe with a different set of physical laws. And uh, in order to stage an invasion of ours, they need to make sure that they can just survive in space. Right. Um, I don't know if it'd be so... called terraforming the universe but or the galaxy, <laughs> but that's what kind of what they're trying to do here. Sphere exactly. builder forming. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, this, yeah, because so we did get it in Harbinger, which was a, a, about four or five episodes prior to this, okay. um, where they, they, they come across an area of space that's been changed already. So I think they mention at that point, again, it's, you know, watching this many this quickly, it's it's hard to know which was said in which episode. But I think they mention at that point that they that's when they realize what the spheres are for. Mm-hmm. So what what did you think about the Sphere Builder actually admitting to helping the Reptilians in Detroit, Patrick? Um, I like the scene because I like the way she kind of just blows them off afterwards and tries to make it like, no, I saved the council. Yep. And he's like, and Degra's like, no, you circumvented the council. She's like, no, you're wrong. Shut up. Right. I saved it. They were going to leave you if, if I didn't help them. You know, and, and then she's like, um, they asked another question, and she's like, don't you interrogate me. I tell you what's going on here and you deal with it. Right. Well, it was kind of like she, uh, they're like, they're trying to get her, you know, like catch her on something, you know, like, did, is it true that you helped them? And she was like, of course it is. You know what? Of course I helped them. You know, like who are, who on, are you to question? Is it obvious? Yeah. <laughs> who are you to question me? You know, I'm like 10 steps and two universes ahead of you, you know? Well, so, what, I, like, what I like, too, is after the conversation, I, I think it's immediately after, Degra goes, uh, Archer has one thing they don't, and that's evidence. Yep, proof. You know, So this is like the moment like Degra's really starting to believe maybe they're lying to us. Right. Mm-hmm. That's true. But Floyd, I'll just re- I just remembered something I'll point out here. It is a she, oh. because they mentioned in the previous episode... They they were talking a couple of times and they didn't announce, but oh, she did this and oh. we got to talk to her. Oh, okay, right? okay. They didn't they didn't explain it was the female sphere builder in the previous episode, so they, they, but they did refer to a mysterious she and a mysterious her in the previous. Okay, episode. so they used a gender label. Okay, I didn't catch yeah. that, but I, I didn't yeah. know if they had actually in a Zadi Prime. I didn't know if they had actually ever mentioned that. Can, you know, kind of like the founders in DS Nine, you know, and then like how do they really? Did they do they ever actually label themselves as a female or a male or something like that? So I was just you know we're just going with that. All right, so um, I I think this is a great episode. This is an, like an awesome episode. And as I was watching this on rewatches previously, it didn't stand out as being like a great episode by itself, but. Just watching it in this block of four, oh my goodness. This block of four is really good. This episode yeah. it by itself is awesome. It is amazing. So, yeah, great performances, great writing, great character drama, great tension. And, you know, we've got some damage that we're dealing with here. So uh, was there anything else that you all had for damage or wanted to add for damage? 
Well, if uh, if you'll let me have uh, one more one quick science note, okay. uh, Mikey's science episode. corner. Yes, I was, yeah, science corner time. <laughs> um, yeah, so there was a point early on in the episode where they're all beat up, uh, and they're looking for a place to hide. And to Paul, or actually, um, Reed notices that there's a cometary dust cloud, and Archer's like, "Can we hide in that?" And to Paul's like, "Yeah, it has a magnetic field that will jam sensor readings." Mm-hmm. And I I didn't know that comets had magnetic fields so i went and looked it up and was like you know i'm probably going to find out that comets don't have magnetic fields and this was just like (laughs) but they actually do comets have magnetic fields when uh they get close to stars and um basically gas starts evaporating off of the solid nucleus of the of the comet and then the solar wind particles these charged particles that are streaming out from from the sun and from other stars Mm -hmm. will basically interact with that coma of gas material and induce a magnetic field that can be actually really really powerful wow and uh, so in 2014, there was a comet called Siding Spring that flew past Mars, and it got really, really close to Mars. And the comet's magnetic field actually enveloped Mars and wrecked havoc on Mars's magnetic field, wow. which honestly isn't that strong to begin with. That's why I didn't think comets had magnetic fields at all, because I knew Mars's field is pretty pitiful. Mm. But it turns out that this one comet just like wrecked hav- havoc with Mars's field, and uh, the spacecraft in orbit of Mars uh, that is measuring the escape of Mars's atmosphere. Uh, the spacecraft is called MAVEN, and it actually noticed that during the comet's flyby of Mars, uh, there was a, a, a quite substantial increase in the amount of atmosphere that escaped from Mars because of this strange magnetic uh, field that, that the comet was inducing. Wow. So I learned something by by watching damage and uh, looking up nice. some science. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and then and yeah, and just for future note here, if we're flying or we're going to go hide in a comet, make sure that our sensors or our ship's not affected by the magnetic field created by the comet. Right. Yeah. All right. Good to know. All right. So now let's move on to the forgotten. So the funny thing about the forgotten, I mentioned this earlier on the opening, is I actually forgot what the forgotten was about. You know, because <laughs> so did I. Because we were leading up to this, and I knew what hatchery is. That's the creepy one with the slimy eggs. And then I knew what Azadi Prime was. And then I knew what damage is because it's in the title. It's damage, and the ship is. And I forgot, like, what's the forgotten? What is it? The forgotten. That's way better than Voyager's Unforgettable. Oh my goodness! Yes, the forgotten <laughs> is is a really good episode. It's really good when you think of the crescendo that has happened with damage, and it's just it's all come to a head. This is kind of like the quiet aftermath and everyone has to deal with their own wounds, like mentally, physically, the ship, everything. They kind of, they're just having to deal with the wounds, the real, like what would be the real trauma of being in this situation, being in this attack like this and having to deal with it. So I thought it was a really good change of pace episode. Um, so Patrick, I got to talk to, I got to talk to David Goodman a bit about this episode okay. in the interview from uh, the, from last episode. Okay, because he wrote uh, he wrote this episode uh, with yes, uh, I saw I saw his name pop up. Man. But uh, and then I'll also mention what I mentioned at the start of the episode to our guests here today. So, do either of you guys watch the fan series Star Trek Continues? Nope. No. no. Okay. So the woman that plays the crewman in this here, the ghost crewman, she's uh, Kipley Brown, and she plays Crewman Smith on Star Trek Continues. Very good. So, Very good. Interesting. interesting. So Patrick, um, 
what what did you think about this change of pace type episode that happened right after the the huge explosion that was damage? No, I think it was perfect because it really ties the emotions of the characters back to the other episode. Um, and it, it really, uh, I think it's a good finale for the two episodes that preceded it. Hatchery kind of doesn't fit in here, but the other two where they get into the fight at the end and then all the damage from damage. And then we have this and you have Trip, you know, having the, the nightmares about not writing the thing. And uh, for, for uh, I can't remember her name now. Um, Taylor. Taylor, right. And... Uh, and you have, uh, I think, in this one, like you said, they're all kind of melding together. But uh, I think you end up having T'Pol go see Flocks again in this episode, right? About the about yeah. the Trillium D. And yeah. this is when it's um, actually revealed, like what's actually happening to her to to Flocks. Okay, right, right, right. And then, you know, you you find out. I think the biggest point in this episode, the thing that hit me the hardest when watching this was that what's making it so hard for Trip is that he's not thinking about Taylor, he's thinking about his sister. Yes. And right. and how can someone so young just be gone? Right. I agree. So, Michael, um, what did you think about this uh, slow down and deal with the aftermath type of an episode? Yeah, it's really powerful. I feel like this was definitely a Trip Tucker episode um, as he's he's dealing with the loss of not just his uh, crewmates, but also his sister. Uh, I felt that Trip uh, really made me feel uncomfortable when he starts attacking Degra oh, yeah. verbally uh, in the in the command room. Is that what yep. it's called? Situation room? Command um, center. Yeah. Command center. That's right. Um, and, uh, you know, but but that's that's OK, because I think that's what those scenes were intended uh, to make me feel, you know, like, uh, you know, this guy's being is being really rude and um, uh, sort of uh, verbally assaulting Degra when Archer's trying to win over uh, Degra's uh, trust. Um, but that just speaks to all of the inner turmoil that is going on in, in, in Tripp's heart and in his mind when he's face-to-face with the man who created the weapon that killed his sister. Right. Um, and so that was really powerfully portrayed. Yeah, that was, I again, I'd actually forgotten about that even. That kind of surprised me even on this rewatch. Like, oh, yeah, Tripp is giving him a hard time very uncomfortably, and T'Pol is trying to control it uncomfortably without making too much of a scene about it. So, uh, Brandon, what did, what did you think about, uh, Tripp's reaction that we've got going on here, especially when he was with Degra? Uh, it's justifiable. Yes. You know, like, like this is the man that created the weapon that killed 7 million people, including his sister. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you do feel uncomfortable because we've had these episodes with Degra where we've seen the character change and grow, but Tucker hasn't spent any time with him. Mm-hmm. Right, he hasn't had the chance to get to know him, and it's 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 totally plausible and totally viable that he would react this way. You know, he's he's starting to come to terms with it, and he's got this this uh, event that's triggering his memories of his sister and triggering him finally dealing with the guilt of his sister's death, and or not the guilt, the remorse of his sister's death, uh, because he's he's pushed it aside, and even back in season. Two, the end of season two, he's like, she's just another casualty. She's no different than anybody else. And they're saying, no, she is different because she's your sister. Right. 
And, you know, it's it's been building for this long where he hasn't acknowledged her death. He's been in denial this long almost. And it's really good. It's really powerful. It's a really, really awesome episode. And uh, I, I do got to say that when they do go out on the outside of the ship, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one that's thinking of uh, of uh, uh, Minefield. Mm-hmm. When uh, when they do that, yep. so you know from season two when they have to go out of the outside of the ship again. Yeah, I was actually surprised on that because I was thinking it was going to be a flip and it was going to be Trip who was taking the unnecessary risk, you know, and maybe even trying to harm himself on that when they were going outside. I was couldn't remember who was t- like closer or what possibly could happen. I was thinking, you know, Trip is just he's not sleeping, he's in denial, he is like totally just destroyed mentally. It seems like here. And I couldn't remember if he actually kind of like put himself in danger in that situation. He actually ended up being the hero. Um, but yeah, that I was thinking that also. I was thinking of Minefield when they had to go out to repair the... What, they had to turn off the whatever it was to get the leak t- turned off. But yeah, uh, he was he's definitely... He was mourning his sister. As he's writing the letter, he's mourning his sister. Which, by the way, being assigned this letter in the, under any circumstances would be difficult. But especially under this attack, like it did, it almost just didn't seem like it was the time to be assigned the letter. You know, while we're still recovering from the attack, we're still repairing the attack. It kind of seemed like maybe Archer kind of uh, maybe assigned this a little too soon. I'm not really sure what the time frame would be for reporting a death of a crewman or, you know, someone that an off someone that's under your watch or whatever. But it kind of seemed like this wasn't really the time you know, to do that. Doesn't it also kind of seems like, shouldn't that be Archer's responsibility in the first place? Yeah. Kind of like Archer just I, assigned I mean, it to him. He just deflected it. Yeah. To him. But did Archer do it to make him come to grips with his sister? And, and does this, I don't think does so. this also no. bring this whole thing full circle though? Because remember when this all started, the first thing Tripp said to Archer was, we're not going to do any of that Starfleet junk, right? We're going to do what it takes. And finally we did what it takes right? and stole stuff. And now, you know, he thinks we're heading in the right direction. All of a sudden, his mortal enemy is Degra, the guy who ultimately is responsible for killing his sister. And he's standing on the ship like a friend. Right. You know, so so I guess, you know, I would snap at that point, too. Right. That's true. And then he finally confides into Paul. You know, like he finally breaks down and cries and like kind of go. he's going through steps of mourning kind of thing. And he finally accepts, I guess, I, I'm, I was looking at it like accepts the death of his sister. Like this, so far he hadn't really. It seemed like, like he was still being, he was still fighting against it, and he finally actually admitted or just confided in her about how this was bothering him so much. So yeah, that was, um, that was it was a good performance. I mean, you have great performances all the way around in the, the these last two episodes going into it. Um, to Paul, like Blaylock's portrayal of to Paul and her uh, when she's talking to flocks and her emotions and things, I feel sorry for to Paul so much when I watch this episode, like I feel sorry for trip, but I also feel sorry for to Paul with the way that she's having to deal with these physical issues. Like Blaylock actually makes me think or makes me feel sorry for her on this. So, um, yeah, I, I put on here that Degra helping to Paul, uh, Trip is not impressed. <laughs> that was my notes <laughs> when they were in the the room in there. So um, Archer and Degra agree to meet in three days. So we have like a really quick continuation as far as the way this episode's ending here. They agree to meet, 
and they 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 he secretly sends the signal or the coded message with the children's names um, for him to be, them to be able to figure out that they're supposed to meet them or something like that. Is that what it was? Or is my mixing that around? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that was it. Okay. And they, yeah. they, it was hidden inside the message. Yeah. Was the coordinates. And they, they were supposed to go through this anomaly. And I was almost thinking that this episode, I couldn't remember how this episode ended. I was almost thinking that this episode ended on a cliffhanger. I thought we went through and it started the E squared like we saw another version of us or something. I don't know. I was, I was trying to make something out of nothing. I was trying to create a cliffhanger on this episode or something, but all right. So, um, did you have anything else that you wanted to add on the forgotten? Uh, the only thing about the forgotten that I liked is you, when you see to Paul going through this, she's now because trip has confided in her. So she's kind of carrying around that and the, the trillium issue. Mm -hmm. So you, you actually start to feel even worse for her about this because she's trying to carry pretty two bi- pretty big burdens at that point. True, and she hasn't told Trip her situation, but he no, can, and he confided in her. So and she explains that we we do have um, emotions. Like this is when she tells him, like, no, it's not that we're emotionless. So we have to keep him in check because if I was in your shoes, without that. I'd be losing my ever-loving mind at this point right. and not be able to handle it. Right. All right. So, uh, Michael, what did you think about this block of episodes? Is it is is it good as you remembered, or even better, or what do you think? Yeah. Well, uh, like I said, I had also forgotten what the forgotten was about. Um, I didn't remember damage being quite as good as it was. Azadi Prime's always been one of my favorites, and I found a new appreciation for Hatchery. So it was a really enjoyable rewatch. And um, yeah, th- thank you for having me on board because uh, otherwise I probably wouldn't have done this. Right. Very good. <laughs> Um, I also just wanted to say about The Forgotten that um, Seth MacFarlane uh, mm-hmm. just pops up out of nowhere. <laughs> and That's I was right, like, yes. oh, you're on the Orville yes. now. <laughs> yes. yep. And he was being first. First, he had to be taught by Trip, you know, to work his way up. He's yeah. just a crewman on the Enterprise there. Trip, Trip's his boss. Yeah, Trip gives him uh, a pretty uh, good lashing there. Uh, you know, just like, what are you doing? You're doing it all wrong. Get back right. to work. <laughs> yep. So, uh, Patrick, what, what did you think about this block of episodes? I, I pretty much say this every time we do one of these retrospects, but this might actually be the time I'm right, but this is the, probably the best block of four that you could put together. I mean, again, Hatchery, you could take that out and whatever, you could flip it up. But this is definitely the best three yeah. where the where the story arc is so concise yet so fluid and, uh, you know, it leaves you one right after the other right after the other. And uh, the one thing that is hard is I did remember the episodes – you know, I didn't forget the forgotten, but I didn't remember where everything happened in all the episodes before I watched. Right. So I was like waiting for something to happen. And I'm like, no, she doesn't admit she's a drug addict yet. No, she doesn't admit like it, it gets jumbled because the stories are so close together that that you, you don't remember really remember the timing of it. If you watched them just straight straight through. Yep, I agree. I agree. And, and Brandon, it seems like we've been saying talking about how uh, what we thought about these these group of episodes but what, what what's your final thoughts on on this group this is great this is definitely the best group of four that we've had this this season um i would give you know i would give azadi prime damage and the forgotten i would rate them five out of five like all three yeah. of them 
and I would probably rate Hatchery, you know, four out of five. Uh, but this is this is some stellar enterprise, and this is really the peak of the season. And uh, I don't know if the next set of four is as good uh, as this set of four was, you know. So this this might be the peak for the season here, but we'll see we'll see in a, in about a month here what happens. So it'll be four episodes before we we finish her up but we're going to be finishing her up uh pretty soon very good so yeah the i i think this is great uh when you you name those three episodes together i want like that would almost be like a trek fm uh throwdown right there is try to find three other episodes back to back to back in any of the other series that are as good as these three episodes or or put your three episodes back that are consecutive up against these, these are what we're going to hang our hat on in Warp 5. What do you have over there, you know, in, on Voyager? What do you have on DS9? What do you have? I mean, actually, DS9 can probably put some together there at the end, but um, I, I these are just great. These are great episodes. I can't believe they're written by different people. You know, when you go to watch and you look at who the show writers are, my gosh, they they were clicking right here. They were really putting out some good stuff. So... Yeah, I would definitely give a thumbs up on this block of episodes. Mm-hmm. So, Michael, if uh, listeners want to find out more about you or just talk to you about Star Trek, maybe on social media, where where could they find you? Maybe on social media. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my uh, Twitter handle is MikeY, M-I-Q-U-A-I. And I'm always tweeting about mainly Star Trek and science. So um, you can find me there. And uh, I also run the Strange New Worlds po- podcast, um, which is on iTunes and Google Play. Mm-hmm. Now, we didn't we didn't actually talk about your podcast on this one because we, we recorded a bunch of stuff tonight and you had a guest spot on the edge as well. But in case people didn't listen to that, tell us a little bit about your uh, your podcast here for people so they know what it is. I don't think we talked about it here on, the ed- on uh, Warp 5. Yeah, sure. So Strange New Worlds is a, a very new podcast. I started it this past summer, um, inspired by the other Star Trek podcasts that I've been listening to and the Star Trek Discovery trailers, which featured the this beautiful shot of uh, a binary protoplanetary disk, uh, which is basically the two stars forming with disks around them that will eventually become planets. And I thought, wow, nobody's talking about the really cool science that's being depicted here. Um, why don't I get together some f- with some friends and, and talk about what's actually going on in this image? And that just uh, snowballed into being able to talk about all sorts of real-life science in basically every single episode of Star Trek. You can find nuggets of of science-inspired things there and explore them in more depth. And then also uh, we get to meet a lot of different scientists um, who have been inspired by Star Trek and to hear their stories too is really wonderful. So that's what Strange New Worlds is all about, this cross-section between science and Star Trek. Very good. And Patrick, if our listeners would like to talk to you about uh, some season three of Enterprise or maybe some future episodes of the Briar Patch, how can they get in touch with you? So they can catch me every other Sunday uh, streaming from the Briar Patch and with my co-host uh, Guinevere. But they can also catch me on Facebook. I'm always around the Babel Conference. I'm also on Twitter. Uh, my handle there is uh, Magic Drop Five, one word. The five is a number, though. Um, and then I guessed around the... St- 
around the, the network sometimes, so you might find me pop up here or The Edge or somewhere else. Uh, Metatrex, which I was associate producer for. And, um, yeah, that's pretty much the easiest ways to get a hold of me. Very good, very good. So, listeners, thank you so much. If you've hung in here, this has been a marathon episode. And uh, you get a medal. You get a shiny uh, Zindi medal from the future if you've been hanging around this long. <laughs> and you can put it in your shirt, your sleeve pocket. So, yeah, thank you guys. Thank you, Mike, for coming on. And Patrick, thank you so much for coming aboard. Season three is not the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. So here's what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. I actually hadn't watched the show, I'm embarrassed to say. Um, But I sat down and I started watching uh, and recording episodes. And I immediately had an idea for a script uh, because I found Data to be the most interesting character. To the journey! So you could have like, you know... Carbonated gog. Carbonated gog. <laughs> I'm trying to understand how this works. So the gawk are presumably a little squishy or juicy on the inside. So you're saying that in order to give them the appearance of life, they replicate it with carbonation inside the gawk. Yes, to make them like pop wow. and fizz. Kind of like an Alka-Seltzer, you know? Like pop, pop, pop fizz, fizz. gawk. Warp 5. And I go into the job interview, and I'm just parroting back to him things he said in his interviews but he didn't know that i was just doing that i would say the thing about star trek is that you could write a mystery one week and a western the next week and i'm literally literally word for word things he said in interviews so that's how i always feel and i joke with him now that that's how i got the job but the 602 club when we're talking about the idea of context in history i think this is the biggest issue that i see in this film um, and, and with the, the Force Awakens too, and you put them together because they're going to make a trilogy, is look, writing 101, if you don't know the past and the future of your characters, you absolutely 100% cannot write their present. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And while you're there, please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple's user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps. And you can always go to our website and grab the MP3 file or the RSSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and the best place to go would be to the Babel Conference on Facebook. Type B-A-B-E-L into the search field and join in on all the fun. You can also find us on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. And if you'd like to send us a voice transmission, you can go to SpeakPipe.com slash TrekFM, record your message, and Brandon Shea will add it to a future episode. And if you would like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Warp 5. That will come right to us. And if you enjoy what you're hearing on Trek FM and on Warp 5, you can help us keep these shows coming to you each week by going to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get more details. You've got lots of perks on there that you can find out for whatever contribution level you're at. Most people like to get to that 
patron zone at $5 a month. But if you step it up just a little bit and go to $15 a month, you actually get to go onto the patrons roundtable and try out podcasting yourself. And if you go a little bit higher, you can be an associate producer for a show at $25. And that is exactly what our co-associate producers for Warp 5 did. So thank you, Mike Morrison, Tim Cooper, Justin Oser, and Mark Flessa for helping us out through Patreon. And Joe Saltzman. i also like to thank Tony Robinson for creating the cool show art for our shows and Brandon Shea for editing and publishing Warp 5. Yeah, you're very welcome. Brandon, if our listeners would like to get in touch with you to talk about some damage or the forgotten or anything else Enterprise or Star Trek related, how can they get in touch with you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Brandon Metella. I'm over on The Edge, which is our Star Trek Discovery podcast with Mike and Amy. And that's on every Friday. I'm not on every episode, but uh, the show is released every Friday on the main show. Uh, you can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network. Uh, and... I have a show called Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast, which I record with my friends Chris and Tom. And Floyd, where can people find you uh, when you're not trying to save all those insectoid babies? Oh, goodness. Uh, They would find me in the hatchery, but uh, otherwise, if you really wanted to talk to me, you'd find me in the Babel Conference, the Trek FM listeners page on Facebook. So, Boomers, thank you for listening, and join us again next time for another episode of Warp 5.